This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Friday, final day of ROP. Um, we made guys, it. Yeah, you guys probably have vertigo from all this uh, discussion on ROP, right? <laughs> um, but but believe me that this is the re- the ROI, the return on investment, mm-hmm. <clears throat> when you're able to explain all these things to families at the bedside on rounds. Um, you will see how important and how valuable this information is to families. Um, because like we've said early on in the week, it just gets glossed over. We assume mm-hmm. the ophthalmologists talk about it, but we can't um, put too much responsibilities on our colleagues. We have to take some of the, right? Because the first thing- if, Yeah, and if, parents really care about the ROP exam. Oh yeah, and also for parents who have the slight <clears throat> level of savviness when it comes to mm-hmm. Googling things, the next question will inevitably come up, which is like, you're giving oxygen to my baby. So mm-hmm. aren't you causing this? So mm-hmm. you might as well get ahead of the game and start explaining a little bit some of the things we've talked about this week um, and, and really come across as a knowledgeable physician and provider uh, before the question has to be asked. But uh, Daphna, um, I think we're starting off with a question. Should, should, I, should I read the question? Yes, but should we remind people that if they wanted to teach this topic, that we have a really good PowerPoint handy? Yeah, you can go on nicubordreview.com. This is accessible from our main website, the-incubator.org. And there you will find every week a page with all the articles that we've referenced in the episodes this week. You will get some of our uh, notes on the different uh, trials that we, we reviewed in depth. And you will get access to a PowerPoint um, that will allow you to just go over the material. And the PowerPoint, we've made them, again, we've made them purposefully very bare bones so that the slides are not too busy, but you have all the information in the notes, in the presenter's notes at the bottom. So when you present, you can actually read off these notes. Uh, And we're hoping that this is going to help you uh, teach the material without giving you, alleviating the burden of having to prepare the slides. And um, yeah. So, uh, Daphna, the question today is neurology question 17 and 8. We called female infant born at 24 weeks gestation has her first ophthalmologic examination at five weeks postnatal age. This, examinations, this examination shows stage 2 retinopathy of prematurity in zone 2. Which of the following later ophthalmological finding is associated with ROP? Choice A, cataracts. Choice B, glaucoma. Choice C, ptosis. Or choice D, strabismus. Okay, so when studying for the boards, I mean, you need to have these lists of what causes cataracts and what causes glaucoma. And retinopathy of prematurity is not on either <laughs> of those lists. So, um, and I know what causes ptosis, and it's not ROP either, but um, so it's D, strabismus. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So strabismus is often detected within the first year of life, but can be observed later in childhood. The risk of developing uh, strabismus in a premature infant highly correlates with the history of ROP. Uh, Strabismus has been uh, described in 12 to 22% of premature infants, compared with an incidence of 1.4 to 3% in full-term infants. Yeah, huge difference. Yeah, you don't say. (laughs) Uh, 
Ptosis is the inability of the eyelid to rise to a normal level, leading to a decreased vertical space between the upper and lower lid. It can be unilateral or bilateral. It is usually caused by an abnormal, abnormally functioning levator palpebral muscle, and that's innervated by cranial nerve 3. Uh, ptosis has been associated with uh, certain syndromes, including um, 13Q deletion, Fanconi-Pencytopenia syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome, Mobius syndrome, Noonan syndrome, Smith-Lemley-Opitz syndrome, and Wagger syndrome. Um, cataract formation is a nonspecific reaction to changes in lens metabolism leading to lens opacification. Um, it's been associated with congenital infection, metabolic disease, and genetic causes, but not ROP. I'm going to stop here. Just so you guys know, we're having a shared document from which we're, we wrote notes. And as I am reading the notes, Daphna is actually editing the paragraph I'm reading. It is extremely distracting. distracting. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we made it. We almost made it with nobody noticing, but you had to tell the people. I thought it was too funny not to mention. <laughs> Glaucoma results from uh, an increased intraocular pressure in the aqueous humor and has been associated with Sturge-Weber syndrome and Stickler syndrome. Uh, yeah, we made it through. <laughs> um, so? So we're very... So do you want to introduce our, our, our guest? I mean, we've, 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 we've decided that these... these um, these weeks really should end with a discussion about like the gaps in knowledge. If you are interested in the topic of ROP, where, where should you devote your attention for future research and stuff like that? Um, so we're, we're very fortunate. Do you want to talk about how um, we got in touch with this person and, and who that person is? Like we said, we always like to finish with like, what are some of the gaps in study? Um, maybe spark some new research interests. Um, but especially since a lot of the follow-up for ROP happens after the NICU, um, we, we wanted to talk to somebody who works outside of the NICU and can mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what happens. Um, because Again, parents like to ask. So today we have with us Dr. Edward Wood to help us round out our week on the retinopathy of prematurity. Um, Dr. Wood is a vitreoretinal surgeon in Austin, Texas. He's an expert in retinal disorders who has published over 50 peer-reviewed scientific manuscripts, as well as book chapters, and has numerous faculty appointments. He's a member of the American Academy of Ophthalmology, the Association for Research and Vision in Ophthalmology, the Vit Buckle Society Club Vit and the American Society of Retina Specialists. Uh, thanks so much, Dr. Wood, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here, and I look forward to um, listening to more of these podcasts in the future. So when babies are first screened for retinopathy prematurity, I think when they leave the NICU, you know, there's a wide variety of places they would go depending on where they are in the screening process. So if the baby has otherwise already completed screening, which is not typical unless the baby has been in the NICU for a long period of time due to other um, comorbid disease, they're usually in some phase of the screening process. And we typically see babies until around 45 weeks or 50 weeks of postmenstrual age or until the retina is fully mature which means the blood vessels have fully grown to the periphery of the retina and completed their vascular development. Um, now, if children have some early stages of retinopathy of prematurity, we'll continue to follow them until that regresses or until they completely vascularize. Or if they don't, 
sometimes will consider doing ablative laser therapy just for incomplete vascular maturation at a later age. So usually babies are in some phase of the screening process if they've already been plugged into the screening process for ROP when they leave the NICU. Um, A big part of where the babies will go depends on the context of the facility and who's doing the screening. Um, In some places, pediatric ophthalmology uh, colleagues are doing the ROP screening. In our network here, the retina specialists predominantly are doing the screening. And then when the babies leave, they'll probably follow up with the person that was doing the screening. That's true in most places. However, some hospitals have, you know, just predetermined screeners that come in, either that read images or that go to the hospital. Um, And then when the babies get discharged, they'll go somewhere else. But for the most part, the babies will follow up with the person that's doing the screening in the hospital. And they'll go to the clinic. And the same eye exams that happen in the NICU will happen in the clinic in the same context. It's usually up to the hospital and the hospital system to make sure that that first appointment is in place. Because until the clinic or outpatient setting receives the patient, it's still sort of the onus is still sort of on the hospital. But then once the clinic, once we receive that patient or see them, then it's our patient. Like Mm -hmm. the onus is off the hospital. So that's when the baton is being passed in terms of responsibility for these kids to make sure they are, you know, included in the safety net and don't fall out of screening. And that's where a lot of issues can happen. So most of the challenges in ROP is just making sure that kids are getting seen on the appropriate timing Mm -hmm. because we're so good nowadays at diagnosis, at screening, at treatment. A lot of the issues are actually logistical. And so having someone that's dedicated to ROP in whatever system that you're in, if you're in a place where there is a dedicated ROP person, it really is worth it. Um, And because that person on our side, on the outpatient side, they, their, their sole job and responsibility is to make sure that all babies are seen on time, follow all babies. They have a giant spreadsheet of all the babies and they make, they make sure that each person is seen on the appropriate time. They're coming out of the hospital. We catch them because it really takes somebody to take on that responsibility. You know, it's like a lot of other things in medicine when you kind of think someone else might have it and you might have it. And it's sort of this, and, and no one, no one of, is taking care of it. No one has it. And you're like, oh, I didn't know that you didn't have it. And then, <laughs> and then, so it really takes that person to go above all of that and just own it completely. And that's when you have really good outcomes in ROP. Um, and, and the problem is that if you, if you do fall, if a patient does fall through the crack and eventually even makes it back to the ophthalmology follow-up, if that window has passed, there's permanent damage that could have taken place already. Is that correct? Right. Yes. So ROP is a, it's a developmental disease and we know that it follows a bell curve of, of activity of the disease. So the vascular activity portion of the disease, when the new blood vessels are growing in severe disease, typically peaks around 36 weeks of postmenstrual age. And then after that, 
it's rare to have new vascularly active disease if you didn't have it previously after about 38 to 40 weeks of postmenstrual age. But following the vascular activity comes the scar tissue component or the fibrosis that grows along with the blood vessels. And that's what creates retinal detachment and some of the more severe vision-threatening complications. So timing is critical. And especially in smaller babies, micropremies that we're seeing a lot more of, it's very important to see them, you know, every one to two weeks at most. And so if we're missing a baby for a month, sometimes that can result result in irreversible um, disease. So screening is the most important thing in terms of lawsuits for retinopathy prematurity that every one involved in ROP hears about or, or talks about because at least in our field in ophthalmology, the retinopathy prematurity lawsuits tend to be the highest paying or the or the biggest lawsuits. And almost exclusively, they're related to a failure to examine the baby or screen appropriately rather than treatment. Because people know and understand that sometimes there will be severe disease that it's just the nature of ROP and treatments are are variable and, and you know, experts are variable and I think in those severe cases when the babies have been seen and treated appropriately, but outcomes aren't excellent, those don't tend to result in, you know, significant lawsuits. But the ones that do are just when we said we were going to see a baby and and we didn't, because that's pretty clear. And so that's the big logistical thing to focus on in ROP is just making sure everyone's seen on time. Yeah, and when you talk about passing the baton, that's a good reminder for us, depending on who's doing your discharge readiness teaching, um, is that um, making sure that, you know, the appointment is made and we are stressing to families um, how important it is that they go. Um, And at least in the state of Florida, we, I mean, they sign documentation that they will follow up um, with uh, ophthalmology outpatients. So my other question, and I didn't prepare you for this question, but um, I'm hoping maybe you can speak to some of the newer technologies about uh, that that some places are using to examine the eye. Um, that's something you know I think most of us are not familiar with. Right. So um, one way to do screening is the way it's traditionally been done with an indirect ophthalmoscope, which is a basically a light and a microscope that we have on our head and a condensing lens that focuses the light allowing us to examine the retina, and then we write a note, make a drawing, and determine the follow-up. That's the traditional way of ROP screening that is done in many places. The other way of doing it is by taking photos of the back of the eye. And there's six standard photos that are taken. One is the front of the eye, the cornea, and the eyelids, just to get an overall sense of what the eye looks like. And then there are five photos of the back of the eye, one focused on the optic nerve, and then one in each of the four quadrants or sections of the back of the eye. And that comprises the standard reference photograph set of an eye is those six photos. Now those are then collated into a set and then sent to a repository that's usually uh, correlated with, um, you know, HIPAA and uh, and in a way that's connected to the hospital system for a remote screener to interpret those images. Mm-hmm. And if the images aren't of high quality 
or if there is worrisome disease, then the provider comes in and sees those babies mm. in person um, and decides on treatment or what the follow-up would be. There are advantages to that, which are the sense that you can really determine progression a lot easier on photos than you can from drawings or memory, mm. right? Because I mean, drawings of the back of the eye, we're not all sitting there realistically and you know, spending an hour drawing every blood vessel. Um, but if you look at the photo, you can really tell, right? Obviously what the, what the difference is. So that being said, there are some nuances to seeing a baby in person that you might not get on the photo in terms of an overall gestalt of the eye, or sometimes you can see little things easier by, by examining than you can on a photo. So, um, in terms of, meeting the challenges of screening, I think that it's up to the hospital system to decide on that. It is an investment to purchase these cameras and to, per and to hire someone that will be trained to take these pictures. Um, but I do think that that is the future for screening because it works well. We know that it works well. Um, it works well for both parties in terms of timing, right? Sometimes the ophthalmologist, the timing of when they do exams and when the babies need to be discharged can be variable and that can create an issue. But if there's someone in-house in the NICU that can take the photos, it's a little bit easier for them to do that. And, and, then, and is um, that is that the RETCAM that we read about in some recently RETCAM is the most popular or the most, I would say, widely adopted remote imaging system. Um, and that's the same camera that we use in the operating room when we do exams under anesthesia on babies. The right cam is a great camera, but there are other systems too. There's one by Icon. I have no financial interest in these um, companies, but um, there are several different imaging companies. Um, Icon Phoenix is another great one. Um, and uh, there, there are many others actually that, that do the same thing. So remote imaging or taking retinal images and then screening them remotely is a big part of our field right now. We do that in diabetes and it's widely adopted in ROP. And I think in, you know, ROP, it has great, excellent outcomes because of the reason I mentioned in terms of being able to compare very easily progression. Like you can even go back, you know, two or three weeks and say, gosh, mm -hmm. what did it look like then? What does it look like now? So there's some advantages to that. That's really helpful. Thank you. We had spoken a little bit before you came on um, about how one of the complications following um, prematurity and ROP is strabismus. Um, mm, yeah. What other things are you all looking for um, outpatient uh, in our high-risk little babies? Right. So I think this too depends on the context. So, you know, as a... and. I think most people here are neonatologists or aspiring neonatologists. That's the correct audience. Correct. Just or or, or question, nurse right? or nurse practitioners or nurses right. or parents. But uh, most of the people are providers in one way or another. Right. So you all are uh, amazing in the scope and breadth of your practice. So you are comprehensive, you know, physicians for these tiny individuals. And so that that encompasses many different organ systems, right? So in our field in ophthalmology, you know, we often receive a lot of quips and and winks because we are so subspecialized even within the eye. 
So mm-hmm. I am a retina specialist. So I just, I specialize on just a tiny portion of the eye, right? And then there are pediatric ophthalmologists that are more comprehensive ophthalmologists, but for young patients. And so we'll be looking at things differently. Mm-hmm. So as a retina specialist, those are typically the providers that really focus on ROP treatment. And in some hospital systems, we'll also do the screening to kind of own the whole process from front to back, which I do think is a good way of doing it. But there are not very many retina specialists that choose to or have skill in or, or expertise in specializing in ROP. The other way is the pediatric ophthalmologist doing the screening and sometimes doing the treatment. So there's a lot of variability there. But in terms of follow-up, as a retina specialist, you know, we are not equipped in our in our clinics and and uh, to evaluate for strabismus, for example, to evaluate for glaucoma, um, for example, in a in a in a high data driven way. You know, we can see these things and evaluate for them, but really in a granular way and then in determining treatment, um, that's not our forte, let's say. So when we're following babies as a retina specialist, we're making sure that the retina is vascularizing appropriately, that the disease is regressing appropriately. We're looking at these other features and the other features would be strabismus, which you mentioned, cataract is also something that is higher in children with retinopathy prematurity, whether treated or not. Glaucoma, which we've talked about a little bit, which is elevated eye pressure and progressive damage to the optic nerve that's usually related to eye pressure. Um, Nystagmas, which is the eyes moving, as you know. And then strabismus, um, which we've talked about, but also strabismic or deprivation amblyopia, which is um, decreased development of the neural pathways to the brain leading to vision. And then retinal detachment is also higher. So these things, these other features in eyes are higher in prematurity alone. They're even then a little bit higher in babies who had ROP that did not require treatment. And then they're even higher in babies with ROP that did require treatment. So as a retina specialist, we will examine children, screen these things, make sure the retina is fully vascularized, get them out of the ROP danger zone. And then I will typically uh, work with some of my pediatric ophthalmology colleagues to have the babies that had some form of ROP with or without treatment, meaning it regressed on its own or I treated it, follow up with a pediatric ophthalmologist. Mm -hmm. And then of the babies that were just premature, sometimes they can appropriately be screened by an optometrist or a pediatric ophthalmologist to manage some of these issues. Um, So just to summarize, you mentioned strabismus, but I would also add amblyopia, cataract, glaucoma, nystagmus, and retinal detachment. Perfect. Thank you. So another passing of the baton then to the to the uh, pediatric ophthalmologists. Um, I think probably our last question. Uh, we like to end every week with kind of the gaps in study. So what are some things that we don't still understand about 
retinopathy of, of prematurity and say a neonatal just wanted to engage with this um, kind of work, um, where do you think is a place for us? That's a great question. Thank you so much. I think one of the issues that we are seeing now is that babies are being born younger and of lower birth weight all the time. And a lot of our landmark clinical trials in retinopathy prematurity, and I'm sure in your field too, mm-hmm. you know, when we look at data on babies, a lot of those babies are, were larger in, in some of the more landmark studies that were, and, and now we're dealing with babies that are higher risk. They're of lower birth weight, of lower gestational age. And how can we, you know, apply that data that we tend to, we want to be data driven. How can we apply that to these younger babies? And so I think it would be helpful and it's something we're working on and looking at, you know, when do micropremies or very low birth weight or very low gestational age babies develop ROP exactly when it's typically earlier than, than people think it is from these landmark studies and how often should they be seen? The screening guidelines were similarly created from studies where babies were on average, larger and older. And so in some of these smaller babies, we likely should be seeing them a little bit earlier and a little bit more often. And that gets back to the main point in ROP, which I think is is early diagnosis and early intervention is the key to good outcomes. Because the bad outcomes happen when we get caught behind for whatever reason, and we're kind of trying to play catch up. But if we can diagnose things early, usually we can lead to, uh, usually we can have good outcomes, even in very high risk babies. Yeah, it's funny. We, um, we feel the same way that the, and the studies are showing that these, uh, that our smallest, youngest babies are really a group of their own. Um, and so right. point well taken for sure. And this, and this applies also to like the 22 weekers now, right. which are being resuscitated, survive. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, I had not thought about it this way. That's, that's actually very interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that's really all we have time for. We really appreciate your time. Uh, this was very helpful. Um, Dr. Was. Wood, thanks so much. Great. Thank you. Feel free to reach out anytime and I uh, look forward to hopefully being on again sometime. Let me know if I can ever help. Sounds Thank good. You. Thanks so much. Thank you. This was really helpful, Daphne. This was a uh, packed week, um, sure. and we did learn a lot. Uh, we we will the show will come back on what is it May May ninth, correct? Mm-hmm. And do you know? Uh, did we decide on which topic we'll be covering? Yeah, we are talking about hyperbilirubinemia, but specifically phototherapy as a as a treatment modality. Absolutely. Um, so. Yeah, for those who have studied the boards, you all know that when it's one of these topics for, I'm talking to the people who haven't t- taken the boards yet. Right. It's one of these topics that you're like, everybody knows about phototherapy. Yeah, it's Billy. It's and then And then you get to the Billy boards <laughs> and, then, and then you start reading about it and you're like, I didn't know that. Like, really? And then, so that's really when, when we were doing board review questions, Daphne was like, we have to talk about all this mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. So it's going to be fun. Okay. Bye, all right. everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.